Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast. Thanks again. It's always a bit of fun. This is the fifth and final episode of our Passive Income mini-series where we are answering questions. We've got a heap of questions sent in via email uh, and they're on all different types of things, but I've tried to bucket them into ETF-specific stuff. Uh, we've got all fund-specific stuff, dividends, tax deductions, super funds, insurance bonds, portfolio construction is the, by far the biggest, probably the most interesting part of it as well because we're talking about how you actually find funds and put them together. So we'll try and be quick. We'll try and get through these questions. There's about 10 or so uh, in around about 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, and if you are new to this series and you want to go back and listen to it, you can access all of the recordings on the Rask Media website. Uh, you'll see the, the passive income series sitting right there. There are five episodes in total. If you want to go back and learn more about um, how we've got to this point. Uh, Drew, People can also find you by going to waddlepartners.com.au yeah. and from there, there's a contact form as well, right? Yeah, definitely. Or just email me directly. I get a lot of emails. Happy to, happy to answer. All right, mate. So we're going to get into our questions. The first one is more of a niche question and it's about the BetaShares YMAX fund or ETF. People confuse it for an ETF, but it's actually a managed fund that's like listed. Yeah. Um, and actually, before I get to that, just remember that any of the questions that we do answer in this episode are strictly general financial information only. We have anonymized them and we've changed some of the questions around a bit. Um, always seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial planner before you act on this information. And it's really important too, if we talk about funds, to go and look at the PDS and remember that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Now that we've got that fun stuff out of the way, mate, the question is, would be interested in your thoughts on the BetaShares fund YMAX? As a way of generating income, how would it fit in a portfolio? I think it's a pretty complex or complicated question because what, what YMAX is is a covered call strategy. So essentially it tracks mm. the ASX 200 and then writes call options to or sells call options if, to generate an income from that. Yep. So the income from is something like 10% per annum, but that income is really selling a portion of your shareholding in order to generate it. Uh, I think... It's very niche. It would not form a part of a core portfolio that, that we'd use probably for a few reasons. We were discussing before. One yep. of the biggest challenges is turnover because you, you're writing call options all the time uh, and selling a portion of your holding. You, your portfolio is turning over a lot. And then the other one is it, it kind of requires a flat market. So markets to track sideways because if markets are moving too quickly up, you miss out on the upside. Mm-hmm. And if they're moving too quickly down, you're forced to sell into a selling market. So or a falling market. Do you kind of share those views as well? Yeah. So just to confirm how this one works, there's basically two parts of this portfolio. Um, the first part is there's like a core holding of ASX stocks that pay dividends. And then over the top, once those stocks are held, they're the beta shares team write options. And the benefit of writing options means that they can collect a small premium, very small premium uh, for selling options, say three to 7% above the share price. And BetaShares team collects that small amount of revenue or income and if the shares were to rise to that point before the option expires, the the person that bought that contract can exercise. And so the problem that you have is that shares can get called away 
Um, so if the market suddenly rises, say in two or three months, which it can do, yeah. particularly when it's volatile, um, which it can do, the shares effectively have to be sold or settled in, ca- in cash. And what that does is it does create turnover. I couldn't find a turnover f- figure for it because I don't know if they want to post that. But, but um, It'd be difficult to calculate too probably. Yeah. So the, the, the end result is that I agree with you. Like This should be you know, really like a tactical part of a portfolio, if at all. Yeah. Um, we've talked about VHY before, which is the Vanguard high yield shares. I would opt for that. Yeah. yeah, over this one. So if you think the market's going to be flat for three months and you're happy to take equity risk, you might put it in for a short period of time. Yeah. And if you're wondering why the share price keeps falling, uh, it's because most of the return comes back, it's income. Um, so that's that's basically why. Um, that's a good question. Okay, the second question is, thanks for your recent podcast on passive income. I'm looking forward to the episodes to come. I am in my mid-50s and have recently begun to invest in some index funds. Uh, the question goes on to say, how do, how do you find ETFs that are growing capital and have a high income rather than yield? So I think the question is more around how do you find ETFs or funds that don't just, you know, not distorted by capital return, but also just will continue to pay a reasonable amount of income? Yeah, I mean, it's the ultimate question and probably a question that isn't asked enough that, you know, generally we look at what was yielding the most last year and go and buy that because it looks the most attractive and yep. you know probably commodities are an example of that at the moment they've had an incredible year their dividends are increasing uh but i think it's probably what all retirees should be looking to do or what most people look for passive income which is companies that are continually paying out more money every year they call mm-hmm. it i think dividend aristocrats overseas yep. like 10 or 15 years of increasing dividends um and i think one of the we've found a group uh, that's probably pretty widely known, which is Martin Curry. Yep. They've essentially run the same, the entire strategy is based on a, I think it was something like a consistent dividend for life mm-hmm. or an income for life. So it forgets about historical dividend yields and actually looks for companies that are growing mm-hmm. uh, dividends every year. Um, and I think a big part of it is is just that that if you focus solely on what the historical dividend yield is, look for the biggest ones. Well, generally they're paying out more in income than they are reinvesting in themselves. So mm. it's about balancing that capital growth and business and earnings growth and paying out dividends on the other side. Mm-hmm. And this is a managed fund, right? It's not in a listed structure. I think there's an ETF for oh, it is. as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, they're probably what kind of known for infrastructure and real assets. So that's the uh, probably the next part of the answer was you know what are the kind of assets that are paying consistent and increasing their inca- their income every year, and it is things like infrastructure, like property, like real assets. That's where their focus has generally been, uh, but also in you know quality businesses that have got strong cash flow because that's essentially what you want. Okay, I've just come up. Uh, I just did a quick search of this. The um is it from BetaShares? The BetaShares Martin Curry Equity Income Fund. Is that RINC or something? E-I-N-C? E- yeah. 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 Okay. So it's the the, the it's the aim is to provide after tax income yield above the ASX two hundred by investing in Aussie equities and grow the income above the real rate above the rate of inflation. Should be tough at the moment. Yeah, which should be tough <laughs> right inflation now. at five percent, but you know, long term inflation is really two and a half to three percent. Yeah. So uh, I think that's what real what is really valuable is that growing income. Yep. Not selling, you know, buying one dividend stock and replacing it with another when the dividend falls. Mm. And historically, yeah, chasing last year's dividends has resulted in finding yield traps all over the market. Yeah. And this is, uh, so I, I don't mean to keep coming back to this, but the Vanguard VHY ETF uses forecast dividends yep. based on analyst consensus. 
Um, and just to the, I guess, just from a higher level with this question, uh, I'd also just be mindful that what we're principally doing is looking for our buckets of yield. So Aussie equities, if it's a diversified portfolio, we know it's going to have some element of income if it's a managed fund or if it's a ETF. Whereas say if we're investing in US stocks, we might not get the same yield. So just in terms of buckets of yield, we could probably expect more from an Aussie equities portfolio or ETF or something like that, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. How about, I guess, then bonds? I guess it's, would you see bonds as a source of yield as well? Now, yeah. yeah. If you talked to me 12 months ago, it would have been a, a different question yep. uh, or a completely different answer, sorry. Yeah. Um, so the the benefit, so everyone's seeing interest rates increasing as a negative. I've got a mortgage as well, so yep. I hate seeing higher repayments. But the flip side is that you know the Australian government bond has gone from about 0.8% yield to 4%. So the lowest risk investment you can buy is now yielding 4% in the US, about 35 mm. So it does make bonds more investable. And then things like hybrids, uh, essentially every other fixed income investment is priced off that bond yield. So hybrids pay a percentage above the bank bill swap rate. Mm -hmm. That's now somewhere between 4 and 5% from memory. So all these other asset classes now become investable again after being pretty much, mm. some, for some people, untouchable. If you're getting 0.5% in a term deposit, why would you lock up your money for 12 months? Yeah, yeah, okay. So that, there's a, are some other questions here that uh, have followed suit. The one is, is it better to have an all-in-one ETF, so like the Vanguard Diversified High Growth ETF, for balance or an Aussie ETF due to the benefit of franking credits, credits to maximize income? I think it's probably a two-pronged question because you're going to have a portion of uh, Aussie equities in the Vanguard product. Yeah. I generally say just with my background, I'd want to build the asset allocation myself. Mm -hmm. no, I, I don't want Vanguard to determine why I split between growth or Australian and, and uh, overseas equities. So, I'd probably build it myself, even if it's from the Vanguard product. Maybe you go, if you prefer to invest in Australia, you might have 70% in Australian and 30% overseas. And at least you can control that rather than just being yeah. following Vanguard's SAA. Not that there's anything wrong with it. Yeah, I would say um, it, it also depends where you're at with your life cycle, I guess. If you're just starting out investing, um, you might just prefer just to keep just chucking it into a core portfolio, like something yeah. 50 grand or 100 grand, keep just allocating and then start to get more, I guess, tactical and more hands-on as, as you grow. I think that's the benefit of having so many options, in the, even just in ETF form now, without even thinking about managed yeah. funds, that you can go either. You can put it set and forget, or you can have more control. You know, you could hold Vanguard and then in, then add a VAS or VHY next to it to get yeah. higher dividends as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this is the final question from this one, um, which I was a bit stumped by, but um, also using uh, Vanguard VAS, so the Australian Shares ETF, as an example, is there a calculator that can show you whether there is a better outcome from investing long-term, e.g. 10 or 20 years, whether you save fortnightly or say monthly and you cover the cost of brokerage a bit better? Not that I've found yet, and I don't think you've found one either. No, no. There is... There is I haven't seen this necessarily because there are certain fees associated with different brokerage platforms or platforms in general. The one thing that I have found is uh, there are investing frequency calculators that don't take into account the cost of brokerage. Yeah. I'm sure someone out there will go and solve this now, but um, there's one from Perla and there was one from the United States that shows investing frequency. So I'll put a link in the show notes and basically it just shows that 
if you have a certain amount of money, so a finite amount of money to invest every month, would you be better off breaking it up fortnightly or monthly or annually? Yeah. And it's a very simple calculator, but I'll put that in the show notes. It's really like we often say if you are investing where there's 10 or $20 of brokerage to save up, you know, $1,000 or $2,000 rather than trickling money in at 500 bucks a pop makes sense. I think yeah, most of the modeling though will probably show that the more often you invest, the better yeah. because the modeling assumes, you know, the long-term return is positive, which means mm. the more, the longer you're in, the better count compounding you get. Um, and I think the fee is probably relevant there too. So if you're investing in exactly the, exactly the same amount, obviously a lower fee product would end up, if it was invested in the same asset, a better outcome at the end. Yep. Um, this is a question that I just threw in just before, Drew, so we haven't had a chance to prep for this one, but I'll, I'll field this one if you like. Um, the question is, I'm a new, bat, a new dad, 27 years old, and have a daughter who is now nearly two. Um, they got some money gifted to them when their daughter was born, and they just bought straight into the NDQ ETF, which is the NASDAQ 100 ETF through Pocket, which is Comsec Pocket, like micro-investing. Um, did an initial $2,000 investment and every quarter top up around about 360 bucks, so $30 a week. That's currently down 10%. Um, so everything we do is long-term and 20, 30 year decision. Um, but I, and I find splitting the funds between Aussie global emerging market and bond ETF just complicates the process. So, um, I guess the question is, uh, if I'm investing uh, $30 a week, um, what's the best way to invest for them? And I think we can't tell you exactly what to do, but, uh, just from a high level, um, I think this relates to the question that we just spoke about that investing regularly kind of works. Comsec Pocket, by the way, is one of those micro investing platforms where you can invest small amounts of money. Yeah. Um, and if this money is truly in 20 to 30 year time horizon, I think we've spoken about this type of thing before for younger people that are accumulating over a very long period of time, you would have a more aggressive um, allocation. Like for example, 20 to 30 years, I'd imagine is close to 100% equity. Yeah, I don't think you'd be holding bond ETFs. Yeah. You know, your, your cost of implementing would, would wipe out a significant amount of your return probably <laughs> yeah. at the moment. So yeah. I was going to say, I, I think this is what the case you were saying before where you're probably weekly investing is too often yeah. um, given the transaction costs and you probably want to reduce it to quarterly or, or something similar so you're not paying a significant amount every year. Yeah, and... Um, Equity, uh, you can probably just find out that over time, over the years as money compounds, um, that you'll end up just eventually getting more bespoke with the strategy. At the moment, NDQ, IVV, the SP500 ETF, these types of ETFs are pretty well diversified, even though they may be US focused. Um, you know, if you're just dollar cost averaging into them over the next 10 years, you might have a few grand put away, and then maybe you can start to be a bit more hands on with it. Um, the next question, mate, is specifically around dividends. And it says, how do you expect the coming dividend payments to be influenced by the current economy? Increasing inflation, increasing interest rates, falling markets, how do these affect dividends? Just as a side note, I um, was out for dinner the other night and a, a investor who was um, you know, an older bloke said that he's not investing until November because- Sally Bain go away? <laughs> well, he thinks there's more pain to come for the economy. Yeah. So- I think we're in a pretty unique position at the moment uh, because we've, we're coming off the back of the pandemic where banks basically cut their dividends in half. So yep. they're actually not at the stretch levels they were. You know, payout ratios before that were getting close to 80 or 90%. They're, yeah. they're well below that still. 
and they're still building up. You're seeing it might not as quickly as we thought. They didn't snap straight back. Uh, and I think it's going to be very sector-based. You know, it's easy to get caught up in the negativity when there's daily news and inflation and, all, you know, property sector and all kinds of things uh, struggling. But I think it's going to be very different in every sector of the market like it has in the past. Mm. Um, it's clear that commodities, oil and gas and that sector will do well. You know, they're uh, higher prices everywhere has, compared to historic levels. Cash flow is great. Debt's been repaid. So clearly they're focused on paying dividends out. Mm. I think the bank, I wouldn't be too concerned about the banking sector. Um, yeah, loan growth will slow, but their profit will be maintained because they're able to generate better interest margin. The, the areas of probably concern would be retail, essentially because mm. eventually oil prices will eventually make people travel less or <laughs> spend less money. They're not yep. yet, if you've seen the airports lately. Yep, it's crazy. Uh, and that'll feed through to retail spending eventually. But I, I don't think that's a concern this year. I think it, it will take a little while to feed through. And that assumes the, without going to monetary policy, this, you know, central banks keep pursuing the aggressive approach. Mm. Um, what people are saying is until something breaks, yep. which I don't think they want anything to break. Yeah. So mm. <laughs> I wouldn't extrapolate it too far out. I would, I'd probably just, uh, I agree with everything you're saying there. And we took, this question was specifically talking about the short-term impact. Yeah. Um, I'd say for most investors, if you are investing in a diversified portfolio, don't overthink what happens from one quarter to the next. Yeah. Remain focused on that three, five and 10 year time horizon because energy is going to be bringing out great profits like BHP is 10% of the VAS ETF right now. Yeah. yeah. So you're going to get dip more dividends from BHP, but in a year from now, commodity prices might, due to their cyclical nature, fall away. Yeah. At which time, you will be glad that that was a balanced portfolio. So what I would say is just don't be one of those investors that go and chase the dividends from this year or last year, as you said earlier on. Yeah, and just focus on good companies. So yeah. don't be chasing it into you know smaller and companies that have had one good year on yeah. the back of whatever, you know, pandemic era events. So mm. you, you want good companies that have got good cash flow and then it, it really doesn't matter what happens to the economy around them. Yeah, like we, we've we seen a lot of like smaller mid-cap energy plays are currently, like the share prices are rising faster than anything. Yeah. Um, but for the last five years, they've done nothing. Yeah. So keep that in mind. We could go back to something similar to that in time and you don't want to be left uh, holding the bag there. So um, this is a question, this next question is more about tax it's more a tax related question so a quick question are there um any of these investor research platforms so these are things like um this is actually a question that's come across from the finance podcast into the investors podcast that we have but it's more along the lines of like they, they are subscribed to morning star they use ticker which is the research terminal that i use as well it's like 25 bucks a month share site which does portfolio administration performance and tax reporting um, if you are self-managing your own investments according to morningstar's website Yes, Morningstar's research is tax deductible. Uh, I'm not a. Is that tax like asking <laughs> the barber if, if you need a haircut? I'm not a tax agent, but I'm, uh, is it still a tax financial advisor? I think the registration is. Yep. So, and the basic uh, requirement to be tax deductible is that the expense you're incurring is contributing to you earning a higher taxable income. So, yep. if you're using that research to invest, even if you're losing money one year to the next, <laughs> uh, I. I still believe it's tax deductible. Yeah. Um, and this might be one to follow up with your accountant on, but just because um, there are certain things that may qualify and some things that may not. Uh, for example, um, if you don't have a portfolio already producing accessible income, you may find that uh, 
it may you may, you you have to offset against something. And if you don't have income from a portfolio, it's a bit hard to justify. Yeah, I got ten thousand dollars worth of subscriptions, but I don't have a portfolio. You know, you can't just go, oh, well, I'm a you know a plumber on the side that doesn't need at least one stock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you need something in there. Um, so that's uh, that's a great. And they said thanks. Many thanks for the excellent podcast. No worries at all. Thanks for the question. So superannuation slash investment bond. This is something that is going to get a bit into detail here. So a per, for a person who has made the maximum concessional and non-concessional contributions to super and yet has another 10 years in their working life, is the 10-year investment bond a good investment vehicle? So I'll just I'll throw that over to you in just a second, but I'll just explain an investment bond often called an insurance bond, was very, they were very popular before superannuation came into existence because they were effectively a, a place where you could put money and that thing would be taxed in its own right, so outside of your own income. Um, and then there, I, I, maybe I can let you explain the, the tax rules of um, if, if you want to. Otherwise, it's 125% is basically the cap on what you can contribute every year before you lose the tax advantage status. And what is the tax advantage status? Well, after 10 years, it can become tax-free. So that's the, that's the basics of it. You should read, obviously, the PDS before you get involved in one of these things because they are complicated. Um, so the question is, you know, they've got 10 years left to go, is this 10-year investment bond something they could consider? Yeah, I think the key there is it's not necessarily tax-free, but tax-paid. So you're taxed at the company rate right, within yeah. the bond. So it's not like you're avoiding tax all completely. You just paying it within that entity yeah. rather than personally. Good point. Um, for us, we've never been big advocates. I know there are benefits. And I think the biggest benefit is people earning the highest marginal. You yeah. know, if you're earning over $180,000 a year and you don't want any more taxable income, then this is perfect because you're paying tax at a lower rate within that entity. It's also reasonable for where you want to lock that money away. So if you want to give it to your kids but you don't want them spending it, mm. you put it into, into one of these and they know it's there but they can't touch it. Um, I think the, the challenge, of course, is you lose some of the benefits of investing directly. You don't control when things are bought and sold. So it can be turned over yep. within the portfolio and you pay more tax than you may at 30% than you may want to. CGT discount, you don't get that through the an investment bond because it's a essentially a company tax rate. Yep. Um, and then the biggest challenge has been the limited limited options and then you're essentially paying a fee for someone to administer it. Yep. So we, depending on the capital involved, we've used things like discretionary trusts more often, but they've got their own complexity. So you, yeah. you, it's essentially you're trying to reduce your taxable income and divert that to someone else in your family or elsewhere. Yeah. When I did a lot of research on these uh, insurance and investment bonds, um, I found that they were most appropriate typically for people on, the, as you said, the higher income. Yeah. Uh, but there are many quirks to them. One of them is obviously the amount that you can contribute. You do not want to over-contribute because then you have to reset the 10 years that they start, it starts ticking over. Yep. It is taxed at 30%. I think the benefit of franking credits is redu uh, reduced from that. So if you do invest in something inside of the bond, I think it can offset some of that, Not definitely not all of it. Yep. Um, and inside of a bond, it really depends on who's providing the bond and what investment menu they give you. So it, um, say if it's like Australian Unity, um, and there, there are many others, but I know Australian Unity is a popular one amongst most people. Like Australian Unity will give you an investment menu. It might be managed funds or whatever, and you still pay fees to Australian Unity and to whoever does the investing as well. Yeah. So it's not as straightforward as oh, it's thirty percent tax, you know, versus my tax rate. So yeah, discretionary. I imagine discretionary trusts are a lot more common. Yeah, I think most people have a trust anyway. Whether if if they've already 
maxed out their superannuation contributions. Um, but I, it is probably more a question of keeping it away from everything. So how do you keep it from children or yeah. <laughs> or from your own hands getting onto the money because because you want to spend it? So yeah. I think that's where the real benefit of it is. And sometimes with these bonds, um, they do encourage good savings habits and they can provide for transition of, you can speak to a tax lawyer about this, um, they can provide transition of assets or like um, basically like you said, if you've got it for children or something like that, that can help too. Um, there's, a, there's heaps of information available on the website. Um, it seems like this person yeah, is quite well to do in terms of they've already maxed out their contributions to super and realized that. So yeah. um, worthwhile considering their bonds. Uh, portfolio construction. So this is the kind of the, the meat in this Q&A session here, mate. So the question, this first question goes, hi, Andrew, love your shows. The two of you are on the same wavelength. There you go, mate. Um, okay, so question number one is how do you build a portfolio that could provide $2,000 before tax as an income for retirement? I don't know if that's $2,000 each week. I couldn't work it out either. I'd say it's like hundred grand. But that's, yeah. And then they said, just pretend this for a second. So the, the second part of this, pretend I'm a new client. Um, mid-40s, walks in and say, I have half a million dollars on the ASX spread amongst 30 holdings purchased over the past three years. That's being a mix of index funds, ETFs, and company shares. Um, and they say, it's too much stress and I want to simplify things, yet get some good growth and income in future years. However, with the current share prices to sell out now would mean I'm crystallizing losses on nearly all of my holdings, end quote. How does a client like that, guess, I guess, go from... Got 30 holdings, bit worried, midlife, decent amount of money, turn that into income. There's probably a few layers of this one. Yep. Uh, and it's probably a, and it's how a lot of clients walk in. Yep. Um, that I imagine most of them would walk in yeah, like this. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, unplanned portfolio, they usually only take action when they've underperformed or they've lost money and they yeah. want to change things up. Um, you know, the way we build a portfolio, we've got a model that we think is the best assets at any given time, but we're also wary that, you know, crystallizing losses, if it's otherwise good companies, isn't necessarily the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. So if you're, the, the big question is, what are you buying with the things that we're thinking about selling? If you're buying assets that have uh, gone up significantly by selling already, by selling assets that have fallen significantly, where well, you, you have the potential that you miss out on some of the the upside, so it could sure. be better timed. And then it'd be, what are you selling would be the other question. Are these companies, do they have chances of recovery? No, we're talking about small cap NASDAQ stocks that may need another 0% mm. bond rate to, to recover again. <laughs> um, in the way we see it is, it's for new clients like a negotiation process. So we will always tell you exactly what we think straight away <laughs> and then it's a matter of working out how we get there uh, are, are some of the holdings a proxy for what we're recommending anyway so if you you hold a bank that we don't think is appropriate it still gives you an exposure to the sector yep. and as long as there's nothing terminally wrong with it um, but yeah our starting point would generally be to sell everything and buy what we think is better suited mainly because that is what we think is suited not for today but for the next 10 years um, mm. and if you're not invested in those we'll we think your returns may not be as good. I think capital losses are probably better than capital gains if you're sitting <laughs> on heaps of capital gains because then you've got to time the selling for That's the harder question. Yeah. Getting people to sell winners is much harder than yeah, getting to sell yeah. losers. So at least if you, you crystallize losses, it's it's done. Um, and Can be carried forward too. Yeah, that's which, it. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a big part of this is like the, the bias of like recency bias and sunk cost fallacy and all that comes into play. 
Yeah. Where investors are like, well, I've owned this for a while. It's lost, but I still think it could be good. But the reality is it's not doing too well. Um, if like I think it's more like a detox for a lot of people when they walk in and see a financial planner because the financial planner goes down, well, what's your asset allocation? They go, don't know. And then you go, okay, well, this is probably what your risk profile suggests. How do we get to that from where you are now? Yeah. And that might be, you know, a pretty aggressive risk profile of this person's hands on, has already been doing this for a while. And they might be thinking, well, you know, maybe 70, 30 or something like that. And then, okay, how do we cut that? And over, it could, over could take a year, months. could take 18 months. So we don't always suggest doing it straight away. Uh, you don't have to pull off a Band-Aid and, mm-hmm. and be there tomorrow. Yep. But, you know, uh, slowly doing 10%, 10% a quarter or 15% a quarter yep. and stepping in. I'd say if, if someone's got five, uh, based on like the case study that we did last week, which um, showed Jill and Ralph, uh, sorry, Jane and Ralph, which had the, that fictitious portfolio and they needed between 1.2 and 1.6 million to get their desired level of income. If you've got half a million dollars trying to get $2,000, I assume per week, um, it's not going to happen. So at 40 years old, you still have a fair bit of accumulation in front of you, uh, meaning you're still saving, you're still investing, probably in risk on assets, equities, for example, you've probably got 10 years. And I think the key on that one would be growth. Like you, you're looking at $2,000 in income uh, of income in retirement, yep. But you don't need income now, so you need to be trying to balance growth, growing the the capital, reinvesting into the companies that you own, as mm. well as generating a small amount of income now. If you you want to balance those, probably yep. more towards growth. That makes sense. Okay, so the next question is, and this is a good one because we're talking uh, about all of this stuff now because so much has happened in recent times. First of all. Uh, let me congratulate you on your YouTube videos, particularly the series with Drew. Absolutely amazing. A couple of questions for Drew. Number one, Drew, where do you see gold in an SMSF? Or at or near retirement time, would you consider it as defensive or the alternative defensive bucket, which is what we talked about in the second episode, I believe it was, or somewhere else? What sort of percentage would you hold? We have this discussion every day. Um, we've kind of settled on defensive alternatives for gold. It's a hard real asset. Yeah, the the daily price can be volatile, mm-hmm. um, but it's you know in short supply. We're not gold bugs by any means. Yep. But um, I think an often forgotten part about gold is the currency that you can actually buy it in Australian and US dollars. If you buy it in Australian dollars and the Australian dollar is worth less, like it has been the last the uh, last couple of years, um, the Australian dollar gold price goes up and you're actually breaking even or making money even mm. if the gold price itself is falling. Uh, we think we see it as a hedge, hedge against volatility, hedge against commodity prices, hedge against uh, interest rates. Uh, so we, at some points, we've held up to 10% of the entire SMSF hmm. into in gold Yep. because our view is if you want a hedge, you have to have a significant exposure. There's no point in having 2% in gold as a hedge um, and we also say if you're going to hold gold, hold a whole bullion, don't hold gold stocks because you've, if you've watched the market over the last six months, they all have their own operational challenges at any given time. Yeah. I think this is a – and that's a good point just to chime in on that. Uh, a lot of people buy the stock equivalent of something thinking that that is a good hedge, which is not always the case. So if you're building a portfolio, you want to have the best expression of that trade. So if you want – Gold price exposure, get gold. Yeah. Don't buy the, the stock that digs gold out of the ground because you're exposed to cost overruns, reserve, you hedging. know, estimation, yeah, uh, hedging, every, all of this sort of stuff. So 
just go with the, the best expression. Um, and in this case, Drew says that up to 10% he's had in the past. So uh, the next question is, same as with gold, where do you see in an SMSF a property trust like this one? And he provided or she provided a link to the Trilogy Industrial Property Trust. I've never heard of this. Well, I have heard of the heard trilogy, of it, but, but yeah, yeah, don't know particularly well. Yeah. We we kind of see property as an alternative, and then the it's either in defensive or growth, and that depends on the quality of the property, the diversification of the strategy, the amount mm -hmm. of gearing in the strategy. So something like agriculture tends to be in, and a smaller strategy tends to be in our growth alternatives, given their expected returns higher and the and. The size is generally lower. Mm -hmm. um, and then things like industrial property, uh, healthcare property, that is, you know, who the tenants are, Amazon, federal government, these sort of tenants, and that tilts more towards defensive. Um, and then you're generally going to say unlisted and uh, less liquid sits in your defensive because it's less volatile and has the correlation benefits okay. and diversification benefits where listed property, as we know, Trades very similar to equities. It has an equity-like risk, right, when it's on the stock exchange. Exactly. Yeah. And you can see that in Australian Super's returns uh, for the financial year as well. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, unlisted assets. Hooray. Uh, so that's a good question about Trilogy uh, there. So the next question is, hi, many thanks for this very timely series on passive income. Thank you. You're very welcome. And this is why we uh, we did it at this time because people are focused on income. So I am looking to invest six hundred thousand dollars for about five percent or thirty percent per thirty thousand dollars per annum income for my eighty seven year old mother, and would love to know the types of investments you would focus on in this scenario, and rough allocations for each. Um, the, the the question, the context of this question is that um, there was an elderly couple that they had a rad um, a refundable accommodation deposit. Um, father passed away now the grandmother has to basically provide her own income uh and to because they can't get the pension to replace that income in some way so if you've got six hundred thousand dollars they're looking at about five percent per year which is 30 grand how would you do that i've been looking into investing in bonds dividend income funds property REITs, or unlisted funds i feel like you would have a somewhat simple answer for this question taking it back to basics i'll try to be simple yeah i think Essentially, what you want is a portfolio that can deliver that income regardless of the environment. If equity markets are falling, you can get the income from somewhere else. Um, so we generally say you want a diverse you want a diverse range of asset classes. I think a five percent income, as we said, is a balanced to balance growth in terms of the amount of risk you need to take. Uh, and what we tend to focus on more with clients that are relying on their capital for an income is cash flow. So. Don't be focused solely on the dividend and the dollars of income coming out of the investments, but focus on firstly making sure there's always enough cash in your bank account and then have some structure around how you're managing that. If your equities do well, or you sell some equities and put it back into cash. If your bonds do well, you sell some bonds and put it back into cash. So it means you've always got enough money to meet your expenses, but your, your capital still um at work at the same time. Would, would, so, so this person, the mother is 87. Yeah. Would that be, um, would you say you want a year of living expenses covered? Two years? Like how can I think about that? You'd probably say at least six months of expenses in real hard cash yep. um, and depends on the comfort of the person. You could go, for a lot of people, it's a full year and that just sits in cash. For some people, that burns a hole in their pocket, so it is very personal. Yep. But I think the one of the problems that, that a lot of clients we, we talk with have is that they get too focused on the 
dollar income coming out of the portfolio and comparing that to what they're drawing. And, you know, if you were the, with superannuation or most things, you have to draw more every year as you get older mm. and you simply can't, if you just chase the income that keeps up with that, you're just tilting your portfolio to assets that often no growth on the other side. So yep. uh, I think, yeah, I mean, you, you could easily get a diverse range without taking a whole amount of risk. I had things like corporate bonds and hybrids that we talked about before, you can get 4% yield from them um, and mm. you can essentially top that up by diversifying and having some Australian equities or other investments and across the board have a less volatile but portfolio averaging 5%. Mm. Uh, just looked on the Macquarie website while you were answering that. Um, 3.2? Yeah, 3.2 TD. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's been an asterisk next to it, so keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> Read that asterisk. Um, but my point was going to be, you mentioned in the prior podcast that you want to you want to get the return with the least amount of risk. Yeah. And so you could probably build it from there up, right? If you know that you've got 3% from a TD, it's not that far to go to get to 5% if you need some risk on. Exactly. I mean, our starting point would be if you could get 5% for every client, if you get 5% or if you can get the amount of income you need from putting all your money in a term deposit, which has been impossible for the last 10 years, mm. then you do it. We we recommended 7% term deposits back in 2007, but mm. the equity market was doing 20% per annum and not many people were comfortable locking away five-year capital for seven yeah. percent and in hindsight that would have been the best return you yeah, could get great idea so it's yeah it should be a starting point yep. it should be zero risk guaranteed return mm -hmm. but most of the time you can't quite get the five or six with that unless you have a significant amount of capital yep i think on the just quickly just to recap this you got 600 grand for an 87 year old i think you can um i think it's a pretty good effort like i think a lot of people at 87 that are trying to sell fund with 600 grand, that's a pretty good position to be in. Yeah, I think you're going to be leaving capital to your children as well. Yeah. So that's kind of why you, you can keep some growth in there but because it's generational. Yep. Um, okay, so the next question is, I have a question for the passive income series. My partner and I are both 26 and with very secure employment income. Uh, we currently only invested in Aussie shares and are saving cash to purchase our first investment property in the next two to three years. Um, what would you suggest we do now to be able to have a diverse portfolio and a reliable passive income in the next 20 to 30 years? Hell of a question. I said the ultimate question, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, the first thing I say is if you're saving for an investment property, I, I'd just be saving for it, not putting it into equities at the moment because you're yeah. going to be leveraging to sure. have exposure to the market anyway. Um, so, I'd, yeah, I'd be focused completely on saving because the risk is what happened at, what's happened at the moment is the, your savings fall 15%. Mm. And you're forced to sell your equities at a time to buy the property that you want to. And it sounds like your priority is investment property, not growth through through equity markets. Can I ask you a question? If you were 26 years old and you had really secure full-time employment income, would you invest would you consider an investment property over other asset classes? In hindsight, yeah, I think if you're 26, it's the best way to get leverage. Okay. And the cheapest way you can leverage your money five times is essentially the benefit of investing in property. Where if you did that in the other asset class, you're going to see significant volatility. So that's okay. not advice. So. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. that's with hindsight because uh, I didn't yeah. do that when I was 26. Yeah. Yeah. Would uh, you? That's it. I would. Yeah. I'd I've come around to it. I'd probably do that. And particularly the, the key here is very secure full time income because anytime you add leverage into the mix, it's good while it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you need that income to underwrite it, basically. Uh, and then you can do other things around that. But 
don't assume that what happened over the past 10 or 20 years with Aussie property is going to continue. Exactly. So that's probably one big caveat I'd put there. Um, and in terms of a reliable passive income, once you're done with your shorter term or your medium term goal, you can continue to build out your equity portfolio. Um, we did speak loosely about um, having you know, an investment property, you get leverage, but then you can use lines of credit as well Yeah. Um, to secure against that asset. You start um, recycling that debt into other asset classes. Yeah, exactly. And that's where you can get leverage across asset classes. Um, so that's something to consider. I think that would be a good question to actually ask your financial planner who can help set you up and put you on the right track there. Um, what percentage of our income, this is the same question or questioner, listener, uh, what percentage of our income after all outgoings should we be putting into a savings account and what should we be investing into shares slash ETFs? Um, I think you're going to say all of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think if you're if you're saving for a property, an investment property anyway, I'd be putting yep. all of it into your savings account, even if it's in your offset and you're just reducing the amount of interest you're paying for the time being. And then in terms of saving, or well, you need to think about, you know, reverse engineer it and say, how much do I want in retirement mm. and work it? It's, there's quite good modeling to work it back from there. Um, but yeah, I, I'd always wary of mixing priorities. Know what you, for you, it's easy for me to say it, but know what you what's want. your top priority? Yeah. And then, and then just focus on that for the time being. Yeah. Um, offset accounts, a good one because you don't pay tax on saved interest. Yeah. So um, with interest rates going up on mortgages, you're actually getting a better deal in your offset account. Uh, yeah, good one. And the, I would just reinforce the stock market isn't a place to put cash for two to three years. Uh, hi, Owen and Drew. This is the next question. My question is, um, can you give me some concrete slash real-world examples of how to go about researching and selecting assets that go in the defensive side of a larger portfolio? Maybe we'll just start with that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the, 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 that's the biggest challenge. There's so many options, potential investments you can invest into. Uh, I think what people will tend to the advisors do it, investors do it, is you end up focusing on the individual investments at the bottom and there's hundreds of thousands of them. Mm. Um, and you get this, what my dad probably would have said was analysis or paralysis through analysis that yep. you just can't make any take any action. Um, so I think you, the way we do it is you start with a broad universe of investments. So what do we define as defensive? We went through that in a separate podcast, corporate bonds, credit. What are you comfortable investing into? Mm -hmm. Which ones are suited more to the current environment? So is it fixed rate versus floating rate bonds? Um, and then once you've worked out what your universe and what you're comfortable investing into, then you step down into the next layer of investments. Yep. Okay. Similar. I like it. So the, the follow-on question is, how does one go about analyzing, selecting a suitable wholesale fund, managed fund, ETF, lick, or whatever for the defensive side? And this, um, I guess, is another that carries on with this. How does one decide what asset type is really relevant to focus on? Uh, so finding the funds is easy as for us as an advisor. You essentially got, as you know as well, you got fund managers and new strategies knocking on your door or calling or emailing or mm. marketing everywhere we read. So um, there's no lack of strategy to find them. Ta actually taking those meetings, going on to webinars, if, even if it's asset classes you don't know about, it educates you more on those asset classes and, and in a lot of cases makes the case for the asset class, not just the strategy. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's an important source. But also you know, experience starts to tell you uh, what sort of – asset classes are better suited to different environments. So is it 
floating rate in a floating rate investments in a um, rising interest rate environment probably more so, uh, and then starting to look deeper into those. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, what's your risk profile? You know, are, are you comfortable with with volatility, and how much control do you want? Do you want to determine the allocation between government and corporate bonds, or emerging market debt if you're looking for a, a high yield, or do you want to just outsource that to one group? Because plenty of groups that employ 100 analysts that all build a portfolio mm. of every fixed interest part of the fixed interest market and give it to you in in one fund or <laughs> or listed products so yep uh yeah and that you can start with listed products there are heaps of different listed products you can um there's a, a report just as a quick one um there's a report that the asx does every month it's called the exchange traded products monthly list or something it's pretty big yeah, yeah. it's a big report and it covers all the licks all of the reits all of the ETFs, all of the listed funds, you get it all in one report and you yep. can, it gives you heaps of data and it shows you trends and whatever and you can- Separated by asset class as well. Yep. So that's a, it's, it's freely available on the ASX website. Uh, the final question around this is actually about, here we go. Um, any tools or sites you would suggest to help with this discovery, comparison, narrowing down and selecting of managed funds problem, e.g. Morningstar, Investment Center, do you rely on things like Morningstar, Lonsec, Foresight, Zenith, Atchison Ratings? All of the above. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I think like any research, you don't want to have a single source and everyone has their own um, different view on different asset classes. So one group might be more comfortable with alternatives compared to another. One group might be more comfortable with less liquid strategies compared to another. So having a diverse range. I mean, we use Morningstar, Lonsec, Zenith, um basically every everything available and get as much research as we can but it's just a tool that you still have to apply your own qualitative overlay and mm. and determine the quality and then part of our process is identify the asset class identify the, the the sector within that asset class we want to be invested into find the top five or ten through these research tools and then meet them meet the portfolio manager meet the people making the decisions and do our due diligence that way yeah and if you are the type of person that is seriously considering allocating to these funds you can go on their webinars go to their website call them they'll their bdms or whatever will pick up the phone yeah uh, and then if they a lot of them do in events or attend events as well which is a very uh, valuable source of insight into people you can just meet them and you know a lot of people particularly if they're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars want to eyeball the person that they're investing with yeah, yeah makes definitely. sense yeah and i think that's why a lot of the to be honest a lot of the listed like uh, listed investment companies, I think that's why they've done so well is because a lot of people want to speak to the person that runs it and they do roadshows all around the country and all that Better at communicating and engaging with the audience. Yeah, that's it. So yeah. if they're going to direct, direct to investors, um, yeah, it's a great thing. So you can, yeah, so just to confirm, you can, for some of these websites, you can get subscriptions um, if you are interested in finding funds or whatever. And the reason why subscription, I say subscriptions is because some of them are behind a paywall and they'll give you basic or limited information on the front end, but some of them are only for advisors. Yeah, for wholesale investors only yeah. or sophisticated. Yeah, from my experience, I think Lon Second Zenith, there are only, I, I could be wrong, but I think there are only advisors. Yeah, Morningstar has its own retail license. I think the other ones, we, uh, and they can only be released to advisors as well. Yeah, if you request one, you have to prove that you're a financial professional basically to get it. So, um, yeah, keep that in mind. But Drew, there are a heap of questions. We've been through tax, insurance, bonds, building a portfolio, whether you're starting out or not. If you do have any questions for Drew or for me, you can still email us podcast at rast.com.au. 
But if you do have uh, financial planning specific questions, I'd say to send them through to Drew. You can access the Waddle Partners website by going to waddlepartners.com.au and there's a contact us page and there's a form there that you can fill out. But I'm always happy to take your questions. We're also on LinkedIn if you want to reach out and say good day. Drew, heaps of fun, mate. Five episodes of Passive Income. Who would have thought? It's, uh, been, it's been fun. So thanks for joining me. Thanks again.